This is week number 22 in our study of the book of Daniel. And last week we finished up with chapter 6, which was all about Daniel in the lion's den, a story that many of us are very familiar with, have heard all our lives. And you remember that that was a result of several men in the government of King Darius coming to him and really tricking him into signing an injunction that said for a period of 30 days no one would make petitions of any man or of any god but only of King Darius himself. And so Darius signed this petition and not too long later these same men who tricked him into signing that came to him and said one of your uh, presidents, one of your commissioners, uh, an exile from Judah named Daniel uh, is re- refusing to obey your injunction. He continues to pray to his God. And you remember that caught um, King Darius kind of by surprise. He certainly should have already understood that Daniel would have continued to pray to his God, as was his practice. He knew he was a faithful man and that he wouldn't abstain from that. And yet Darius had been caught in a trap. And so uh, the penalty for disobeying the injunction was to be thrown into the lion's den, with, for us would be equal to capital punishment, to be injected or to be put in the electric chair. It had been the same for them. It was to be thrown into the lion's den and pounced on by the lions. And so Darius tried to figure out a way to get Daniel out of this predicament, get himself out of the predicament, because you remember before this, Uh, King Darius had intention to promote Daniel to be second in command over all of his kingdom, meaning Daniel would be elevated over the other men who had been his fellow commissioners and that they no longer would go directly to the king, but they'd have to go through Daniel. So because of jealousy, because they didn't want that to happen, they had this plot against Daniel and they had caught Darius in this trap, and Darius did everything he could to get Daniel out of it, but that was unsuccessful. And so Daniel was put into the lion's den by the king himself, and the stone was placed over the the opening, and it was sealed with the insignias of both the king and of the men who were opposed to Daniel. And so Daniel spent the night there, a night that was full of anguish for the king, And when the king came and called out to Daniel the next morning to his delight, Daniel said that my God has sent an angel who has shut the mouths of the lions and that I'm unharmed. And then you remember he immediately declared for him to be raised out of the lion's den and like the three who came out of the fire with no effect whatsoever. So Daniel came out of the lion's den with no ill harm, no no effect whatsoever. He was just like he was when he was put in there. And so as a result, uh, the king, angry against the men who had tricked him and had uh, come up with this plot against Daniel, had them and their wives and their children all thrown into the lion's den. And there the lions uh, pounced on them and crushed their bones, as Daniel wrote, before they even got to the bottom of the, of the lion's den, showing that... Um, Daniel's night in the lion's den with no harm was truly a supernatural work uh, wrought by God. It was a miracle um, because these people immediately died when they went into the lion's den. So only God, this time by the agent of his angel, could shut the mouths of the lions so they would do no harm. And I told you, and I believe this, that all through that night it wasn't Daniel who was afraid of the lions. It was the lions who were afraid of the angel. And so they spent the night in terror, not Daniel, as the, as the angels just imposed on them that they would close their mouths. And so they did. And so as a result of all of this, Daniel's fellow commissioners are no longer alive. And so Daniel's the only one left, and so he does receive the promotion. He is second in command, and he's elevated back as he was with Nebuchadnezzar to running the whole kingdom So now under Darius, after the change of the leadership, really the empires, Daniel's now back to the same position he was under King Nebuchadnezzar. He's second in command over all of the kingdom of King Darius. And so that's kind of where we left him last week. And um, Daniel is, at this point, through telling 
really the story of his own life, the story of them coming, um, really the story of Babylon. You know, this the whole the book began in 605 BC when um, the Babylonians came and captured Jerusalem and carried off with them the choicest young men, Daniel being one of those, and took them to Babylon and indoctrinated them for three years in the Babylonian culture, in the Babylonian sciences, in their literature, in their language, in their name, changed their names, just indoctrinated them into their society. And really only four men that we know of, that would be Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't get sucked into that Babylonian way of life. They remained faithful to their God. And and really what the first six chapters of Daniel are all about is the lives, the holy lives that these men lived in the midst of the Babylonian culture. And and, And at this point, now where we're at, the Babylonians are done away with, and it's the Medo-Persians who are in control of the empire that was once the, the Babylonians. And so we've walked through six chapters, and it's been filled with uh, miracles that God has wrought. It's been uh, filled with intervention by God into the, the lives of men. It's been filled with Daniel interpreting visions and dreams and and uh, which in itself is a miracle, and with God um, literally by his own hands changing the rule of Babylon from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians. And so we've seen these things. Remember chapter 1 was not only the, uh, the exile of the Jews, but it's also the miracle of eating vegetables and being found even more handsome, more... Uh, well-nourished than those who ate the choicest foods of the kings. And so that was the first miracle that we saw, the second one right there with it, that those four men who ate nothing but vegetables also were found to be, as the Daniel wrote, ten times better in their judgment and in the decisions they made than anybody else who went through the same courses and study that they did. And so because of that, Daniel was put at the king's side in his court, and then he requested that his three uh, friends be put over the province of Babylon and, and rule it. And so the king granted them those things because they were so much better than anybody, any of their contemporaries. And then chapter 2 was the vision of the image. You remember the image made of many different materials that represented the kingdoms that would come through the ages. The miracle in that chapter is that without being told by the king, because the king couldn't remember his dream, Daniel from God received the revelation of not only what the dream was, but what the interpretation of the dream was. And so he explained that. It goes all the way from the time of the Babylonian kingdom to the time of the eternal kingdom of God himself. And everything that's in between is in that statue. And Daniel gives the interpretation. And because of that, he again is elevated and um, uh, given a higher position by King Nebuchadnezzar. Then we get into um, chapter 3, which is about the three who went into the fiery furnace and came out unharmed. So clearly the, uh, the miracle there is three faithful men who refused to bow to the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up and called for all of the leaders of all his provinces, many thousands of people, had come together to worship, and these three men refused to bow to the image. And because of that, the fire was heated seven times hotter than it had ever been before. And these three were cast into the furnace, and God himself literally came and stayed in the furnace with them and protected them from the flames. As they came out, the, uh, all the eyewitnesses who were there um, gave testimony that not even their hair was singed. They didn't even smell like smoke, even though they had been in the midst of the fire. And so all these thousands of people who came um, in, for purpose of washing this image went back to their provinces praising the one true God who had saved these three men in the fire. So God spread his glory throughout all the kingdom of Babylon uh, reversing really what King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do, miracle of God, once again. 
then we get into chapter 4, and chapter 4 is a recount and, uh, and a proclamation by King Nebuchadnezzar of the period in which he went mad. You remember he had another vision, great tree, tree gets chopped down, and then there's nothing but an open field that grows up with grass, and so he didn't know what this meant. So once again, all the wise men of Babylon could not interpret it. So Daniel comes in and miraculously interprets what this dream was all about. And then Nebuchadnezzar, on the backside of that, after he's restored to his sanity, after going insane for a period of seven years, chapter 4 is his proclamation to all of the world, to every person everywhere on the planet, he says at the beginning of that proclamation, that they all should praise the God of Daniel because he was able to humble me, take away my kingdom, make me live in insanity for a period of seven periods, and then restore me back to my kingdom and give me more glory than I had before. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, the unbelieving Babylonian king of a polytheistic um, society, proclaims to all the world the one true God, his kingdom will endure forever miracle of God intervening using the king to promote his own glory then we move into chapter 5 chapter 5 um, is about the writing on the wall it's the change from the Babylonian kingdom to the Medo-Persian kingdom the greatest miracle there there's two of them one is first of all that a hand appeared and wrote a message on the wall right no body just a hand writing a message, and then the miracle that nobody else could interpret. Daniel walks in, looks at the writing, knows exactly what it means, gives the interpretation to to the king, Belshazzar, um, who's ruling with his dad, but he's really in control, and says that this means you've been weighed in the balances, your kingdom has been found deficient, you've been found deficient, you're done, your kingdom is divided, and is over with. And that very night, Belshazzar is killed by the Medo-Persians and the kingdom falls. And um, within a period of about 20 days, um, the Persians have established King Darius as the king over the, what was once known as Babylon. And so it's the change. And it's clear, a miracle of God, God directly intervening in the lives of men to change the kingship in Babylon. It's by his will, by his, ordinate, by his ordinance, by his decree, that it happens exactly according to how he said it would happen. And what we have there is the fulfillment of the first change of kingdoms that was given back in chapter 2 in the prophecy that was given in the image or the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar saw. And then last week we had chapter 6, clearly a miracle that Daniel goes into the lion's den and comes out alive and is then elevated and promoted and is restored to what position he once had under King Nebuchadnezzar. He now has that same position under King Darius. So full of dreams, interpretations, miracles, God intervening in the lives of men, clearly showing that what is written in in chapter 2 and verse 20, you remember this is the really the theme of the whole book from Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20 where Daniel, after receiving the revelation of the dream, prays to God and he says, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Showing that God is sovereign over his creation. He directs not only what happened in the Babylonian kingdom and then in the Medial Persian kingdom, but in all kingdoms that are ever established from that time, before that time, all the way to the end of the age. He's in total control and is directing the things that happen. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He establishes kings and he removes kings. So if there's someone in authority today, they're in that authority of a a government because God established them there. 
whether they're good rulers or bad rulers, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, really doesn't matter. They have their authority in their governmental positions by the ordination of God. He's the one who changes the times and epochs and establishes kings and removes kings. And that's the theme of Daniel. And that's what Daniel is promoting. That's what God has been promoting through the visions, the interpretations, all the things that have happened in the first six chapters are all about God's sovereignty and him ruling over his creation. Okay, as we move into chapter 7, the tenor of the book changes entirely. It's totally different from this point to the end. Beginning in chapter 7, we no longer have Daniel interpreting visions. We have Daniel having visions that need to be interpreted. And, and so he's given the interpretation by angels, um, by uh, uh, people who are in the visions with, with him. I mean, he asks a bystander and he gives him some interpretations. Daniel needs to know what these things mean. And God uses chapters 7 through 12 to teach us more details about that first image that we saw in chapter 2 that laid out the kingdoms that are, co- that are to come and be world domineering. He gives us more details in these, interpreta- in these visions that Daniel has and the interpretations of them. Okay, Daniel has dreams, he has visions, he's in the visions. Sometimes, sometimes he just sees the visions. So we'll, we'll begin to look at this this morning. We'll go through maybe the first eight verses of chapter 7. So as is our custom, I'll, I'll read those verses so that we can then begin to discuss them. So beginning in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. There the scripture reads, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and with the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So this is the first vision we have of Daniel. And it's a little bizarre, is it not? You have all these strange animals that appear, or at least beasts that resemble animals. Now, it may not seem like it on first blush, but chapter 7 here is a parallel to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is all about the image or the uh, vision of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had. This, this chapter mirrors what that chapter had, except for it has more details about what happens. So help me remember the image that was seen in chapter 2. started off with a head of gold, right? And the head of gold represented what? 
Nebuchadnezzar himself are the kingdom of Babylon, right? Daniel said that very straightforwardly. There was nothing to be misunderstood by that. Okay, the second material that was used to build the statue is a chest and arms of silver, right? Now, Daniel had no idea what kingdom this was to be because it doesn't happen for another 65 years. Okay, so he doesn't know, but we know, right? Because we can look in the historical account and we can look in the book of Daniel itself. The silver chest and arms represent who? The Medo-Persians as they came in and took the kingdom from Babylon. So this statue is all about successive world-dominating kingdoms that exist. Okay, the third was a belly made of bronze, really a belly and the thighs made of bronze. Okay, again, Daniel does not know who that is. And from the book of Daniel, from the book of Daniel itself, we don't know who this is. Okay, not until we get over to chapters 10 and 11. There it'll be made clear. We won't know who it is, but we'll be given many hints. But looking in world history, we know who it is, right? Who is the belly and thighs of bronze? It would be the Greeks, right? Who overtook, and specifically, the kingdom of Alexander the Great is really what's talked about that. The, the Greeks stayed in control of the world, for 300 years or so, something like that. You could make an argument for 300, you could make an argument for 400, but for a long time, they were the world-dominating power. Okay? Then you get to the legs of iron. Okay? And the legs of iron are who? There are many who believe it's Romans, right? The Romans. There are some me being one of those who are skeptical about that. So there's debate about who the Romans are. It could be the Roman Empire with two legs, one in Rome, one in Alexandria where they moved the capital to. to. It could be just the European because that was the common interpretation, say, 50 years ago and even 25 years ago. That's where every, everybody was in that camp, that it was the European kingdom of Rome and then there's some today who would say no it's not the western part of the Roman Empire but it's the eastern part which was in Alexandria and dominated that area not just for a couple of hundred years but for another thousand years after Rome fell and so maybe it's that dominating empire Um, it's possible don't necessarily know because then you get down to the feet that are underneath the legs and there you've got a mixture not just of iron but of clay and iron and so the question is is that part of the leg kingdom or is that a new separate kingdom that is represented by the feet and you've got this mixture some brittle some strong so what does that represent and again there's debate a lot of people think that, oh, well, that's obviously when the Roman Empire fell in the, uh, in the European world that there were many invading tribes that were not as strong as Rome and yet overtook Rome. And so that's the brittle part. And then the Romans were the strong part. And that's what's represented by that. I don't necessarily agree with that. Okay. Um, it, for me, the legs, the feet, all of that, is a yet-to-come kingdom that has not yet been existed. I could be wrong, but I think it's the kingdom that comes before the end of the age. And I'll show you why I believe that in chapter 7. Because I think chapter 7 gives us some clarity about that. So, But again, I'm willing to be wrong, but I just I can't make sense of the arguments that were made 25 and 50 years ago they begin to fall apart. Go ahead. Do you mean chapter 8 gives clarity to what you believe? You said chapter chapter 7. The one, the one we're in will give us clarity about the kingdoms. Okay? Because it, again, is a parallel of what was given in chapter 2. It gives more details, more explanation, but yet it parallels what's in chapter 2. Now, 
there is a fifth or sixth kingdom, however you count them, in chapter 2. What is that one? It's the rock that was cut without human hands, right? And that kingdom in chapter 2 is declared to what? Destroy all the others, pulverizes them so that the such that the wind can blow them like chaff and they disappear. And what else? What else is unique about that kingdom? It endures forever. It overtakes all the other kingdoms, pulverizes them, and it itself will never be overtaken, is the way Daniel said it, as it endures forever. So that's the eternal kingdom, right? And so I believe... The chapter 2 gives us from the time of the Babylonians to the end of the age everything that's going to take place in between. All the kingdoms that are going to be established and exist that are world dominating and control the world are given in that statute. So, your interpretation of these dreams in chapter 2 and your interpretation of what Daniel does in chapter 7 in my opinion has to be able to explain the history of the world from the time of the Babylonians. Because if there was another kingdom, it would have been in the statue. So these are world-dominating kingdoms. You understand today there is no world-dominating kingdoms, right? We have the G7 or the G8 or the G22, all these different groups of nations who, who toy with the, with the history. But there's no world-dominating power. Although we'd like to say we were one, we'd like to look back at the British Empire and say they were one. Not so much. They controlled part of the world, but never dominated the world as did these ancient kingdoms. Go ahead. I think one of the interpretations of the Yeah, there are many, right? Today. Many, many. Too many. Right? And so we'll talk about that. So chronologically, we have to take chapter 7 and put it back between 4 and 5. Yeah, you notice that. It says uh, Daniel opens chapter 7 with saying that I'm in the first year of King Belshazzar, right? Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, chapter 6 ended in what year? Sorry. Yeah. Chapter 5 ended in what year? Remember the year? When did the Babylonians fall to the Medo-Persians? 539 B.C. October 12th, 539 B.C., right? So we know what the last year of Belshazzar is. Do we know what the first year of Belshazzar is? Okay, between Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus, who was Belshazzar's father, probably, there's about six years and three kings. Okay? But then um, Nabonidus is named as the king um, in, I'm trying to remember the year, in 556. So there's about 17 years that he's king from 556 to 539. Okay? Now, Belshazzar, there's debate about this. I've read where some people believe he was the co-regent with his dad for the last 10 years of the reign, for the last 12 years of the reign, and then there's some who believe, and if you have a MacArthur Study Bible, he believes the last 14 years of the reign. So it's somewhere between 10 and 17 years, okay, is where most people would put it. 17 years is when Nabonidus became king until, his king, until the kingdom ended. And then ten, everybody says it's at least 10 years. So somewhere between 10 and 17 years. So this event that Daniel is writing about now here in, in chapter 7 is... 10 to 15 years before really chapter 5. It's between 4 and 5. 
Okay, right? Chapter 4 is the proclamation by Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5 is the handwriting on the wall. So this chapter, this chapter chronologically fits between 4 and 5. So Daniel's writing about something. Now, what we'll see when we get to chapter 10 is that Daniel writes about the third year of King Cyrus, the Persian. Okay, so it's at least that would follow what we just looked at with Darius by a couple of years. So we know that Daniel did not write the book until at the earliest 536 B.C. Okay, because the kingdom fell in 539. Three years later, he's describing things that happened in chapter 10. So he couldn't write the book before 536. Else he wouldn't know all of that when he writes the book. So he, when he's here writing in 536, he's talking about something that happened you know, um, 20 years ago, this vision that he's writing about. Now, he, how can he remember for 20 years? He, gives, he tells us how he knows the details that he, you know, that he saw 20 years ago. And he, he tells us right there in that first verse, I believe it is, where he says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So 20 years ago, 15 years ago, Daniel had this dream and he wrote it down so that he wouldn't forget the details of it. So as soon as he woke up, probably he wrote it down or maybe a day after, but very soon after he had this vision, he wrote this dream down. So now here he is 20 years later writing it out again in the book of Daniel. Go ahead, David. Okay, if, uh, if the statue... Yeah? Right. Okay, and if the gold is Babylon, Greece, and then or Medo Persian and Greece. Right. So you're really talking about civilizations that dominated the known world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if that's the case, then the legs have to be Rome. Have to be. Have to be. Because they're the last Which part of Rome? Huh? Which part of Rome? That's one thought. You remember what I told you about the Roman kingdom? Most of the Roman kingdom is during the age of grace. It's after Christ, not before him. Right? There's nothing in Old Testament revelation about the age of grace. It doesn't exist. The end of times is seen right behind the Messiah coming. Nothing about the age of grace in Old Testament prophecies. Right? It's not there. Unless this is. Unless this is it. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe Rome's not one of the civilizations that was written about at all. Because it's in the age of grace. All. Exactly. It's in the age of grace. But they didn't see it in the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't have the age of grace, right? It's not there. So the statue does refer to all the nations that dominate the world. That's what I'm saying. It does. So you're confused by that. I just think that like the age of grace was hidden, so was the kingdom of Rome. And so it's not included in the statue because it's during the age of grace. Old Testament prophecy. All of the revealed kingdoms. It's just not revealed. Right? I mean, that's the way I see it. I mean, I don't struggle with that. You may. I don't struggle with that. Never dominated the... Look at Spain, who owned more, right? But they never dominated the whole world. 
They never dominated the whole world. We had influence, but we didn't dominate. We didn't rule those kingdoms. Right. They still had their own governments. We had influence over them, but Great Britain was the same way. They, didn't, they had influence over all these places, but they didn't dominate them. They may have taxed them, but they didn't, they didn't <laughs> rule them. My, my point is, Rome did, though. So, yeah. so there's part of human history that's not explained by the statute. That's all. By Old Testament prophecy. Whatever. Right? <laughs> you have to, under, Old Testament prophecy doesn't say anything about the age of grace. That's why Christ had to stop his proclamation reading Isaiah in the middle of a verse. Because it was seen side by side. When we get to Daniel chapter 12, the multiple resurrections are written in the same sentence without any pause in between them, and they're separated by at least a thousand years. Daniel had no clue about any of that. So all of the things that happen in the Age of Grace are unknown to the writers of the Old Testament. They saw them side by side. So that's the same thing in this statue. It's hidden. That's what my belief. You can differ. I don't have a problem with that. I don't struggle with the fact that Rome was hidden. And I'll show you why in chapter 7. Okay? Because I think it becomes clear in this chapter. Could it be the... Now, why are you... Re- we, we talked about this, you know, a couple months ago, <laughs> right? This isn't new. I didn't just spring something on you. When we were in chapter 2, I told you these things. Did I not? Could it be because, uh, I mean, Babylon, and you got... Uh, not Greek, but uh, Darius. I mean, the kingdom is so different, and Greece and Rome is very similar. They took... Rome, when he conquered Greece, they took everything from Greece, their government system and everything else. It's sort of right. the same when you think about it. Well, the Babylon, when Medo-Persia took over Babylon, it's still pretty much the same. It's still the learning center is in the Mesopotamia. They took all the culture. Yeah, but the difference is, Israel everything. Yeah. But uh, Persia then, they were split. Well, we'll talk about that, okay? Okay, because really, the Medo-Persian Empire would be rightly named the Persian Empire. Because Persia took over Mede, and then took over Babylon, and then took over um, Egypt. And so they spread the kingdom where Nebuchadnezzar hadn't even gone. Because Nebuchadnezzar, while he, he certainly pushed the pharaohs back into Egypt, he didn't dominate them. But they had no influence outside of their own land. So he did conquer them as they tried to invade him, but he didn't go into Egypt. He just pushed them back into Egypt. World history. Go ahead. I'm, you know, I'm an abstract thinker. I don't do pictures. I start that as my abstract thought. No, come on. I don't think I've ever had a visual idea in my life. I've read enough books to still ideas. Yeah. And, you know, you read Sir Robert Anderson and coming friends and you think, man, that guy's right on. Yeah. But they can't all be right, right? They, they all can't be right. That's right. So, <laughs> so you have to. This statue, and I'm just like, all it represents is the fullest uh, the time of Gentiles. It does. So all it represents. It does. It re- where in that statue these empires come from is still a mystery. So uh, why? For the last, for the art, for the legs. So why is Daniel full of so much precision? Well, I think because he wants us to know the answer. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the answer's there. It is. I'm not looking for the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> That, like we talked about before, in verse 44 in chapter 2, in those days God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. If, that, if Rome was that fourth kingdom, then God would really set up some sort of kingdom. Yeah, I do think um, chapter 2 and verse 45 is, is one of my favorite verses that kind of unlocks some things for me um, and why I have a lot of the perspective that I do have. 
chapter 2, verse 45, as Daniel um, finishes this interpretation of what's going to happen, he says, Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, you know, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the kingdom what will take place in the future. The whole purpose for Daniel writing this and for God giving King Nebuchadnezzar the dream in the first place is so that the king, and as a result, we would know what will take place. This isn't theory. This isn't what may happen. This is the decree of God of what has and will happen. That's what this is. And that's the reason it was given to Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't given so that we coming 2,500 years later would be confused about what was given to Nebuchadnezzar. It was given for clarity and so that the New Testament writers could look back at it and refer to it. And Christ does multiple times. He looks back at what Daniel writes and says, not yet. Get it right. It's still yet to come. Whereas lots of the people of that time and of our time think that a lot of the things that Daniel wrote about predated Christ and Christ made it clear they don't. They come after him. We'll talk about all those things, right? So this, book, this is why it's one of my favorite verses is because this is not theory. This isn't what might happen. And this isn't given to confuse us. This is given to clarify what's going to happen. So we have to look at it. And in chapter 7, really all the way through to the end of the book, there are many visions, many bizarre things that are given, but the interpretation of almost every one of them is also given. So you have to listen carefully to what the Scripture says. And clarity begins to come. Okay? I've been through this before, and I didn't understand as much that time as I do now. And I still have a lot to understand. But it's the more you study, the more you think, the more you compare to other scriptures, the more you reference what the other prophets wrote, the clearer it becomes. It wasn't given to confuse us. It was given to clarify for us. Okay? It wasn't given so that we could date the time of Christ's return because that day's not known by a man, Right? And so it wasn't given for that purpose, but it was given so that we might not be caught by surprise. And so that's why we walk through it. And chapter 7 gives us more clarity than chapter 2 did, even though at first blush it doesn't quite seem that way, right? Got all these crazy beasts coming up out of the sea. All right, so let's get back to chapter 7. Daniel writes this dream down after he has it. Now, Notice something that Daniel says here. This vision that Daniel happened, was it something that he saw in panoramic colors up on the wall, like the handwriting on the wall? It's a dream, and where is it at? In his mind. So who else saw this or could see this? Nobody. It's in Daniel's mind. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar said about his dream back in chapter 4. You found it, so tell me where it's at. Verse 10. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. Nobody else, nobody else saw the vision of Nebuchadnezzar except for, in his case, Daniel, who had to interpret it for him, right? Now you'll remember that in that vision, Daniel didn't see it. The king explained it to him. And Daniel said, oh, I know what this means. And so Daniel then gave him the interpretation. So this vision of Daniel is something that is private for Daniel, given to Daniel so that he could write this book so that we might be given clarity. Okay, Because you'll note later on when we get there, in chapter 11, I think it's 11, God tells Daniel to seal the book up. Don't tell anybody about this. 
So his contemporaries did not know about these things. But he wrote it so that we might have it. Okay, so so this is in Daniel's mind and his mind only. And so Daniel said in verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Four winds of heaven. So what are the four winds of heaven? Could be heavenly power. Just talking cardinal direction. I think it is. I think it's just talking about north, south, east, west, the winds blowing. And the heaven directs where they come from. So he's just talking about, I think, natural winds. And they're stirring up the water. Now, he says the great sea. So the great sea would be what? Well, I think Daniel tells us it's not the Mediterranean Sea. I think he tells us twice it's not the Mediterranean Sea. Look down, because that's what you would see, right? I mean, we're thinking about this. He sees the winds blowing and the waters churning, right? Mm -hmm. So there's turmoil, there's chaos in the waters. But then, we'll just go ahead and look at this. He tells us that the waters that he's talking about are not literal water. Okay, he's not talking about the actual sea itself. Look down in uh, verse 3 is the first hint. And he says, And four great beasts were coming up of the, out of the sea, different from one another. So the beasts literally rise from the sea, right? Come up out of the sea. And then verse 17. These great beasts, the four that come up out of the sea, which are four in number, are four kings who arise from the earth, not out of the sea. So, what is the sea? Right. It's the people. It's the nations. And they're in chaos and turmoil, and the kings come up out of them. Right, right. And so that's what it's speaking of. And if you go over to the book of Revelation, when he talks about the sea... He's talking about the people. Same, same analogy is used there. So the sea, typically in these ver- visions, represent people and la- na- nations and lands and languages and tribes. Go ahead, John David. I'm just curious what you do with the description of the great sea. Yeah. Because that is very specifically used throughout the Pentateuch by Ezekiel as somewhat of a contemporary construct of Mediterranean. Yeah, and I think, it, I think literally... When he sees the the waters washing and the beasts come up out of it, I think he is talking about the ocean. But he makes it clear that the interpretation of that is the nations. Okay, so it's using a metaphor. Now, he sees the sea, and this is what it. What this it is what it means. He's providing us with the description, the That's right. That's what I think he's doing. And so, yeah, what he really saw in his vision was waters and beasts coming up out of it. But then here he tells us what it really means. And he'll do that all the way through this vision and tell us what it really means. Okay? So we've got four beasts that come up out of the sea and they're each different from the previous beast. Now, how many kingdoms do we have in the statue? Four, right? Or maybe five, or it could be six. But it's at least four, right? And we have four beasts. We don't have five. We don't have six. We have four. Right? Just a hint, right? Told you seven gives us greater clarity to the things that were given originally in verse two. So you got four beasts. And the four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another in verse three. So they're all coming out of the, the nations and the lands and, and that are in turmoil. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. What in the world is Daniel talking about? Nebuchadnezzar, why? Right? given a human mind. Okay? So that 
part of being plucked and stood up to stand erect and given the mind of a man could certainly begin to look like Nebuchadnezzar. So what's the lion with wings like of an eagle on his back? Good. <laughs> Historically, the rampant lion with the lion with wings that stood up on its hind legs, and that was a symbol of uh, Babylon all over the uh, uh, walls of Babylon, the gates of Babylon, uh, the tapestry, etc., etc. Yeah. It, it is a symbol, it's not. At the entrance to the temple, uh, to the palace in Babylon, were these lions that had wings on their back like an eagle would have. How do I know that? They're actually in um, a museum in London, in the British Museum. They have exhumed these from the Babylonian kingdom in somewhere around the middle uh, 1800s, 1840 to 1850, they exhumed them and took them to the British Museum. And there they are today. And they, what they have is the body of a lion, wings of an eagle on the back, and the head of a man. And that was the symbol of the protection of Babylon. And so that's what he's referring to here when he talks about the lion with wings of an eagle. Now, a lion in the animal kingdom right, is the most powerful animal there is. He's also very agile, which explains how Babylon was able to take over so much country and so much land because they were powerful, no doubt about it, and they were very agile. They moved quickly. They established their kingdom extremely quickly at the end of the 600s. Their kingdom spread wide and fast, and so that's why they're described as a lion. Okay, so this is the Babylonian kingdom. And it does refer, I believe, to Nebuchadnezzar when he was restored to his right mind after being humbled. So he was, res- he was erected, the wings were plucked, and he was given back the mind of a man. And so that's what this refers to. It refers to Nebuchadnezzar himself and the Babylonian kingdom. Just like the head of gold Daniel looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said, this head of gold is you, King Nebuchadnezzar. But then it continued beyond Nebuchadnezzar for another, um, well, Nebuchadnezzar ruled 42 years and the kingdom um, existed for about 65. So it went on for another 23 years or whatever after Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So even though Daniel said this head is you, he meant he represented the kingdom. Same thing for this lion. This lion, so this is a this um, ver, this lion with wings like an eagle, is equivalent to the head of gold, in the original image. Okay, it's the same thing. It's the first kingdom that Daniel saw. Now, when Daniel saw this, understand the Babylonians were still in control. He saw it in the first year of Belshazzar, ten to fifteen years before the kingdom fell. So that's why it's still the first kingdom. It occurred, the vision occurred during the reign of the Babylonian kingdom. Belshazzar in control, co-regent with his dad. Okay? So then we go to the second beast. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Okay, so a bear. Have we seen a bear yet in Daniel? No bears, right? Okay, so what does this bear represent? It's hidden. (laughs) You have to read in the white spaces to find this out. Yeah, and why a bear for Medo-Persia? Well, after a lion, 
probably the most powerful animal would be the great bear. It's reasonable. But what's the difference between a bear and a lion? Agility is very significant. Speed. Speed would be one. Which is more powerful, do you think, a bear or a lion? This is not a koala bear. This this is a um, a great black bear. Okay, this is this this is not a little cuddly bear. This is one of those thousand twelve hundred pound bears, right? Right. This is a big bear. Okay. All right. And the analogy you can make to Medo Persia. Here's the way Medo Persia took over nations. They came at you not with 100,000 people, not with 200,000 people, but with like 2.5 million people in the army. There's some accounts where they had 5 million people in the army. And so when they marched in, you could kill as many of them as you wanted to. You were still going to be crushed because there were so many more behind them. I mean, you think about an army of 2.5 million people. Pretty agile? No. Walk slow and crush everything in its path. That's the way he took over, um, the Medo-Persians took over Egypt. They just had so many people that they couldn't stop them. And so that's what is represented by a great bear. He's very powerful. He doesn't move fast. He doesn't need to. He crushes everything in its path. Now, raised up on one side, right? So kind of like not symmetrical. Why raised up on one side? The bear represents what? Medo Persia. Persia might be not stronger than raised up on one side. Yeah, Persia much stronger than, than the Medes were, right? Mm-hmm. The Persians, yeah, the Persians took over the Medes 15, 20 years before they conquered the Babylonians. I mean, you can go read all the story about Cyrus and his mother and his uncles. and I mean, it's all pretty well chronological, recorded in history. <laughs> and, and you can go read those stories. And they're very detailed because the, you know, these guys had um, what they called cylinders. And it was a cylinder, big cylinder. And they wrote all the way around it and spiraled down the cylinder. And this is how they recorded their history. And there's a cylinder for Nabonidus. There's a cylinder for Cyrus. And you can, I mean, if you're able to read that, right, (coughs) then you could read the story of the history of his reign. And so all of this is well recorded. Um, And, you know, was documented, maybe not today we don't have those documents, but when it was documented, they had those documents. And you can read the historians around Josephus and before Josephus. They had those documents and when they wrote their historical accounts. And so those are preserved for us till today. So while we have it secondhand, you have enough sources. I told you this one time that Josephus refers to about 50 historians that he got some of his information from. So there are a lot of historians, a lot of documents that were written that we don't have today, but we have the guys who read them and what they wrote today. So there's, there's pretty good records of all of this. And so that's the way that the, the Medo-Persian kingdom was first formed and then the way they dominated so many other places. And so there's theories about who the three um, ribs that are in the mouth are. You can't prove any of those. But we know they took over Babylon. We know they took over the Egyptians. And then you know, they took over the people really to the north of the Mesopotamia also. They tried to go into India and finally made a truce with the, with the Indians and then backed out. So what's today known as Afghanistan. Go ahead. So is Daniel referring to something that bears yep. leftover food? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, eat much meat, devour much meat. Those are nations. Those are kingdoms. And so these are three, at least, that the bear took over. 
And we know they took over Babylon and took over the Egyptians. The third is a little debatable. So the second beast is equivalent to the chest and the arms of silver, the Medo-Persian empire. So four beasts come up out of the water. The first is Babylon. The second is the Medo-Persians. The third, which we'll talk about next time, is a leopard. That should be pretty clear, right? With four heads. It's Greece. And the division of Alexander the Great's kingdom and the four kingdoms. So we'll talk about that next time. Questions? Comments? I told you it would get slower. It'll get more detailed. And hopefully more clarity as we walk through this. Chapter 7 is our first introduction into... Chapter 7 parallels chapter 2 but gives greater explanation of it. You know, the kingdom of God in chapter 2 is just two little verses and no details given. At the end of what I read today in verse 8, you go on for another 10 verses that talk about the kingdom of God and it being established. And the use of the term son of man, which we'll talk about. Okay? Anything? Okay, thanks for your time.